I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. That's serious stuff that we just talked about. I'm trying to be comic relief, so I'm going to move away from it right now. We need markers to remember what God has done in our lives. Uh, here we go. Here we go. I'm glad I'm around somebody to make fun of. <laughs> because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. It's good stuff. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Featuring Angie Ferris, I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith, episode 45. I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes, who's doing a great job. But this would not be History Through the Eyes of Faith without the talented... Dr. Angie Ferris. Say hello, Angie Ferris. Hello, Angie Ferris. Congratulations on your doctorate. <laughs> Thank you, in theory. Well, I mean, if we call you that, you, you are. Yeah, I've been told I should just fake it. Just say that I have a doctorate. Yeah, why not? I have a doctorate. I have been told that I've done the work of a doctorate. So it's just a matter of getting the... Yeah, you just go in and you just... Yeah, just send them, send, them, send them the link to the yeah. podcast. Mm-hmm. And just, they go, oh, just so do I in. get a doctorate then? Because I'm on no, the po- I'm on the podcast. Yeah, but you don't have the notes. <laughs> I don't have the notes. They can't ask me any questions. I can only answer questions, sort of at a high level, from the first forty four episodes. But, sort of at a high <clears> level. Yeah, like I, you ask me questions a it's lot. High like, level mean like uh, way flyover, or mean as opposed to a deep level. High level means. I, I I can maybe scratch the surface. Okay. Which that doesn't really, that's not a good connect at a high level. Why do they say that? Let's talk about it at a high level. I don't know. Well, do they say that? Yeah, people say that. Okay. That's just a high level. Oh, there's Eminem, a bunch of people. Oh, uh, that was just the screen I was talking about. Uh, the listener was not following <laughs> me saying there's Eminem. Just walking down the street right outside um, the studio. Um. So yeah, well, um, episode forty-four was good stuff. Episode forty-five, I'm excited. Um, I did have. Uh, how have you been? I mean, I. It's just been busy. Yeah, it's been busy. So, if you're listening and you're on episode forty-five, and you've well, if you've obviously you are, if you're listening to this, but maybe you haven't listened to all the other ones. Um, but the idea is that they're chronological but we record these sometimes back to back on the same day so sometimes maybe we was have we ever recorded just one episode maybe maybe when we've had to fill in in the middle of the week we've just done yeah, one. yeah so typically it's two or three and so it's been a few weeks since we've recorded yes so a lot of life has happened yes i did listen on episode 44 we said you know this was coming out after valentine's day which was obviously Two weeks ago, over two weeks ago, and 44 will be coming out. It's not out yet. Yeah. It live right now. It's It'll be out soon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, what was, why was the point of bringing that up? Oh, just because when we get together, we catch up a little bit. Yeah. Because there's been some time. Now, in between episodes 45 and 46, there's not going to be a lot of catching up. That's <laughs> not going to be. Um, but let's just think a minute. Um we did have Valentine's. You did do your presentation yeah. at uh, the Axis Church. Oh, that's right. We did. Yeah. You and Wes came and yeah. I brought my crew. Yeah. that was, I really enjoyed that. Well, good. Um, I, did, I did make a video. I haven't sent it to you, but I made a video of the, of the timeline that I thought was neat at a high level. I said that again. Yeah, you I'm like gonna that phrase. I'm going to stop saying that. 30,000 foot view. Um. Yeah, so it's a quick flyover. It really is. That's what I call it. Yeah. A quick flyover of the stories of the Bible. So we have to leave quite a bit out, but we hit the... But if, see, you've got it memorized. Yeah. I think I'm going to try to get that memorized. What, the... The timeline. Yeah. About how many things are on that? 45. Well, that'd be easy. Yeah. I mean, especially since it's a story. Yeah, so you have to tell the story in between. Yeah, for me, the yeah. hard part is not 
going deeper than the timeline. Like I, I yeah. want to fill in the colorful things that make it even more. But yeah. we did that, and that's cool. And that is ready to take on the road if any listener wants to invite yeah. us to do if it. If you'd like for me to, you know, step up and do a forty-five point overview of the Bible, we can do it. And quickly. then I can critique him right after he does it. That'll yeah. be the show. So in listening to 44, I'm trying to think any life things we want to chat about. Um, oh, this is some life thing I want to chat about. I bought today a probiotic. Do you know what that is? Yeah, I take one. I can't explain a probiotic to me. It puts good bacteria into your gut. Okay. We also take antibiotics. Those kill all the bacteria in your body. Even the good ones. Yes. Which is why you take... I'm sorry. I, this is not a medical podcast. No. But it was recommended to me by a physician several years ago that after you take an antibiotic, you should take probiotics, even if you don't take them any other time, to reinstitute, reinstitute the good bacteria into your gut because you need the okay, good guys. So is a biotic a bacteria? I would think so. I've never looked up that word, but yes. Well, because I was sitting there going, I'm going to get a probiotic. I used to make this dumb joke that I'm going pro with my biotics. I'm not doing any amateur biotics. I'm yeah. going probiotics. So you were going pro rather than amateur, not pro rather than anti. Yeah, and then it just came to me. I'm like, wait a minute. It's pro and anti because I take antibiotics when I'm sick. So then I started wondering, well, then what's a biotic? Why do I, what do they do? And I just thought I'd wait till now. <laughs> To ask you that question, because like, I thought it was like, why would I know? What I don't a biotic mind because you is. take vitamins and you take herbal yeah. supplements and things. And I thought you might not know what a biotic is, but I thought probiotic. I just now at fifty-two years old made the connection that there's a probiotic and an antibiotic. There's also a prebiotic. A prebiotic. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Oh, look. Relating or resulting to from living things, especially in their ecological relations. This is the definition of biotic. Living things. Living things. In this, in this sense, we're talking about bacteria. Yeah, I just... Do you know what a prebiotic is? I guess it creates biotics. No, it's like fertilizer for the probiotics, for the, for the good guys. Well, that's so you take I said, a, creates. Yeah, so you take the... It's like putting fertilizer on your yard to help the grass grow. It's like... Something that you take to help the good yeah. guys grow. Well, we, I didn't. I know that you didn't expect that we'd talk about <laughs> biotics in the first six minutes of episode forty-five. Probably the listeners didn't either. But now maybe you've learned something. So then I'm going to segue into something else I've learned recently. Okay. Well, you probably know this. It does connect to the to the podcast. I think I might have mentioned on here a few episodes ago that I was listening to the book "The Case for Christ." Yes, by Lee Strobel. Yes. Uh huh. And it's interesting as I'm listening. I mean, it's a long book. So I hope I get... Because there's a big case. <laughs> yeah, it's a big case. But I am i don't know if I'll last the whole time. But he's mentioning things that we talk about on here. Because when he goes and interviews these professors and theologians, they explain things that we're talking about here. Like, um, who's the historian? Josephus. Josephus and different yeah. records. One of the things that I just recently learned about listening to that was that I don't know if it's any other religion that Christianity may be the only religion that has archaeological proof of things that are talked about in the Bible, whereas in other religions, there's no archaeological proof of those things. Yeah. Is I that don't know true? if that's true. Well, other religions are not. As we've said before, what's unique about Christianity or and Judaism is that God enters into history. God becomes part of the story. And it, so it so it is a part of it is a historical story. So yes, there is evidence of uh well, I don't know evidence that goes back into Old Testament times coming forward of things like we were like when we were talking about the Battle of Kadesh and we said they believe this is the window when the Jews when the Hebrew people would have left Egypt and come into the promised land and and then you know getting into the life of Jesus and which is really in a way recent history when you're looking at the overall thing but other religions my understanding you know Islam is about a person was founded by a person who lived in a particular time 
and I've never looked into it, but I'm sure there's some evidence of Muhammad, which is a lot more, not a lot, but more recent than Jesus. Um, but then I don't know that like Buddhism and Hinduism, they don't necessarily have a historical well, story. Like, I guess maybe what he's saying by that is like, whatever the story is about Buddha, maybe there's not evidence about Buddha in that place. Like they don't have, what did you say? Archaeological evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, That's, it's I, I, I don't a, want to misquote what I learned, but it was basically separating Christianity from others based on facts that can be proven. Yeah, and I would think that that would come from the idea that it actually is events in history more than just a teaching. Right, right. So I'll also follow back up episode 44. We ended it with the Edict of Milan and Constantine having this dream and then putting it on a banner and going into battle, winning the battle, and then uh, basically making Christianity legal. Mm-hmm. Like they they weren't going to be persecuting Christians like they like anyway I don't know how to say it. you can say it better but it was the Edict of Milan which did what explain it again oh I don't have the words right in front of me but that's but it it, it made it illegal to discriminate against religions that's the, be- that's the better way yeah. to say it and it was one well, three hundred something eighty three twelve three twelve at AD. the very beginning of the fourth century okay. In the same in, in the same episode forty four, I'm pretty sure it, it might have been forty three, but I think it was forty four. We talked about how it became emperor worship, mm-hmm. and you were defining what that meant. Not because this emperor was full of himself and wanted people to worship him, but because uh, the Romans, as they acquired and grew their empire, uh, it was a sense of order, stability, and stability that that caused the the people it gave them order and they were grateful for it yes so then frank realized another star wars connection oh my so when these new ones came out episodes uh, 789 with the rise of skullwalker and and i don't remember the other two the last one was i don't know producer west if you can remember what they are but anyway the Empire, and those are called the First Order. So could this be the First Order? The Roman Empire was the First Order? I can see an argument for that. Maybe even more so in what we're talking about today. Isn't that interesting? It is. That like is. I'm telling you, yeah. All good stories have a backstory. Like the, they became... Anyway, I just thought that was interesting because that would be like in history, the very first sense of order was the Roman Empire. Well, I don't know if it was the very first sense well, of order. Okay, never mind. Dumb idea. Well, I mean, that. we talked about the Persian Empire. We talked about yeah, probably there were that. other empires, but but it was definitely the largest and definitely brought order to places that had not had order before, particularly to the west of Rome. Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting connection. Now, I don't know. Do we want to talk about real quick? I mean, we're pretty deep into 45. We want to get into the meat of it. We want to get into the content. But can we discuss what the title of 44 is? <laughs> I don't. You don't have to do that now. Because no. we haven't named it. No, we haven't. Normally, <laughs> Frank names and I edit if I need to. But a lot of times I don't need to. Yeah. Well, I've listened to it two or three times, and I don't know if I've, if I've got a good... Um, Good title yet. All right. Okay. Let's figure out what we're going to name 45 because we have to record it now. (laughs) We are recording it now. Yeah, let's hear it. We are in it. I don't know what we're going to name it, but anyway. um, So, yeah, we left the story with Constantine supporting Christianity at the least. But he he, he became pretty fervent about supporting Christianity. All right, it wasn't just like a casual, hey, it's okay now. Like you said, he saw this cross in the sky, and that was the banner he was flying under, and he became just like very supportive. So um, this is a one of the books we've been using is the Silk Roads book, which is from a Eastern perspective. Um, th- he says, Christian accounts of the time leave little doubt 
about the limitless enthusiasm with which the emperor personally oversaw the enforcement of Christianity at the expense of all other religions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even though he wasn't saying Christianity is the state religion at that point, he was enthusiastic about it above all the other ones. Okay. Um, If you remember, we had talked about before Constantine was emperor, he was one of, of four kind of co-regents. Mm-hmm. The emperor before was Diocletian, and he had, uh, he's the one who kind of divided the empire into four sections for management purposes. He was a very good administrator in that sense and came up with a lot of administrative management purposes that made a, that helped the empire going forward. But he was a big persecutor of Christians because his thought was if you wipe the Christians out, then we're not going to have as many problems as we're having. Because remember, we were talking about how there was fussing going on. And then anyway, so Constantine was every bit as concerned as Diocletian had been about the stability of the empire and about the difficulties that the religious strife created. But to Constantine, the best course was not to suppress Christianity, to, but to exploit it for its potential unity, for, for potential, but uh, exploit its potential for unity. We mentioned that paragraph at the end of mm-hmm. 44. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to come back and just say that again to kind of set the stage. So he's about unifying the church as much as possible and also because he thinks that's going to make a stronger empire. Yeah. All right? Yeah. By 300 AD, about 15% of the Roman Empire was Christian, which was about 7 million people. 15%. Now, that's just in 300 years. Wow. That's a pretty big deal. So when we talk about West and East, we're really talking about... Um, when we talk about the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire, the Western Empire would be sort of from Italy West, and the Eastern Empire would be from maybe Italy, a little bit east of Italy, East, okay? So in the West, only one person in five was a Christian, but in the East, almost half of the population was Christian. If you're using that idea, Christianity started in the east, right? Because mm-hmm. because the land of Judea would be over there in the east, east so, of Italy. Yeah. Um, actually, the church had become quite large in certain parts. The it was the majority of the population in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and in Armenia. Uh, Producer Wes, if you can throw that map up there, where we can see this is a map of the Roman. Empire in 300, um, and it was it also it had a, it was a majority of the population so over 50 percent in Asia Minor, and in Armenia, and was a very large minority in Egypt, coastal Africa, northern Syria, and in Rome. So if you're looking at this, thank you, Wes. That's awesome. So is it, it's probably going to reflect off of that. Yeah, it's just probably reflecting on yeah. the TV. Okay, so you'll see. See where the word empire is, Wes? Mm-hmm. Just to the right of, no, to the left. Like it up right there. That is the Bosphorus Strait. And that word empire is on the country of Turkey. Okay. Asia Minor and Armenia. So you see all of that area was majority Christian. Okay. And then a strong minority in northern Syria, which is just south of that, mm-hmm. over in Rome, which is over near, you can see the boot of Italy over mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. and then all of the northern coast of coastal Africa, which is all that coast of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So, pretty big area. Yeah, where it says Roman Empire, right? Yeah, that's, that's all the Roman Empire, but the... There was places, whereas in the empire as a whole, it was 15% Christian. And in the West, it would be only like one in five. All around that North African coast, into uh, Syria and up into Armenia and what's today Turkey, that was in some parts a strong minority and in other parts a majority Christian. I got it. Okay. 
So now that Constantine has stepped in and uh, legalized Christianity and is a big supporter of uh, Christianity, this is the beginning of the church and state being intertwined. Mm. And that it remains so throughout history up to this day. Yeah, I was about to say, that's just when they just decided to do this. Yes. So, yeah. And, and I think, well, that's part of the reason of me wanting to share this material, not just this material, but the overall material, the overall look at history, is there, I hope there are people listening that don't know anything about the church or maybe not even are interested per se in the church. They're just interested in history because they, those people need to see how the church has been intertwined with history because mm-hmm. it's shaped our society, our culture of thought processes, whether we personally as an individual – Interesting. Identify with it now or not? Yeah. If if so, are could you could you mean that someone that's not affiliated with any church or maybe even is agnostic or atheist may not realize exactly that the culture that we're in is part of a church something. Yeah, and and that's a point we'll make as we move forward. It starts here. Which is the reason that we followed the birth of the church up to this point. So we can get those eyes of faith, not just to tell the story, but to understand what's important to those people. And now the state, the Roman Empire, has gotten on board. And how is that going to change both the church and the state as history moves forward? Um, yeah, we this we'll say this over and over again, but we have a tendency not a tendency. We want to see things in the past through our eyes of the present. But people in the past didn't have our eyes of the present. That makes good sense. You know, and so it's learning how to see it the way they saw it to really understand why it happened. Whatever yeah. it, whatever it is that we're talking about. So, um So, this is the beginning of that. So, we're going to talk a little bit about not a little bit. We're going to move on talking about Constantine and some things that he did. So besides reunifying the empire and recognizing the church, Constantine, so he became one emperor again. That's what they meant by reunifying the empire Mm -hmm. rather than the four separate. It was all under him. Um, Constantine also moved the capital to the old Greek city of Byzantium. So that is that modern-day Istanbul right there on the Bosphorus Strait. And you can see when you look at the the Black Sea Mm -hmm. and you look at the Mediterranean Sea, all right, that that little piece of landmass there connects Europe and Asia. Yeah. And it's very strategic. And, um, yeah. And it's now part of Turkey. It's now Istanbul, Turkey, and we'll talk about the the history of that. So he went from over here in the middle of Italy to Rome, where Rome was. He moved the capital over here. Rome didn't move. Just what became the capital of the empire moved. Wow. Okay. I don't know why I wouldn't have known that. Okay. So and, this and it became Constantinople? Yes, he named it Constantinople. And it was the old Greek city of Byzantium. We mentioned that last time because you had to... uh, (coughs) I had to take a couple of Byzantium right after the podcast. Yeah. So this city was on the Bosphorus, the strait that joins the Black Sea with the Sea of Marmara and the Aegean Sea, and that separates Europe from Asia. Aegean Sea? Aegean, thank, thank you. Okay. Which is where I go in the mall if I need to get some Byzantium. I go to a GNC. <laughs> oh my goodness! How about that, folks? There you go. That's, that no should caffeine. get you. That should get you a couple of, of little points in the board game right there. And no caffeine on that one too. Wow. So Byzantium, renamed Constantinople, quickly became Rome's rival in beauty, power, and population and almost assured the eventual permanent division of the empire between the two cities. Now, that's a little loaded statement that we're going to get to, but it almost assured the eventual permanent division of the empire between the two cities. Uh-oh. 
Here, Constantine made his home, founded churches, and intervened in church affairs for good or ill. And intervened in church affairs for good or ill. He had no conception of the value of separation of church from state. Nobody thought about that before. Mm -hmm. You think about it, because whatever the ruler's religion was, it was everybody's religion. But then Rome was all tolerant and let, like, you just got to say that you worship the emperor and then you can go do whatever else you want to. That was Except for the Jews. The Jews were excluded from that. (laughs) Okay. But hold up. Not the Jews. Well, and that's kind of an interesting thing, too. There was like, uh, yeah. But then the Christians were trying to claim this one God and we can't do that and that caused them trouble. But anyway, so this idea, he had no conception of the value of the separation of church and state. We just talk about, oh, separation of church and state. Like, it's an ancient idea that, of course, that's a good idea. And that's another reason to study the history. Because mm. it's really a new idea. But the separation? Yes. It's a new idea. So, and right, Interesting. And right here you see he had no idea of that, of, of the value, the conception of the value of separation. As a result, he used the church as an instrument of imperial policy. He used the church as an instrument of imperial policy and forced upon it his own ideology. Remember, he wanted to take advantage of the fact that Christianity could unite the empire. Mm -hmm. So he used it as an instrument of imperial policy, which we're going to talk about what, what he did. And he forced upon it his own ideology. We're going to talk about that. Removing it, meaning the church, from the independence it had enjoyed as a persecuted minority. As a persecuted minority, it was independent. The state was not influencing okay. its decisions. Right. But now it's no longer. They didn't worry about what the emperor thought. Right? Yeah. But now the emperor's on, crassly saying, is on their team. So... That could, how does that make a difference? I'm not asking, that's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to answer that. We're going to talk about that. So, once Constantine had gained sole control of the empire, had eliminated the other guys, he immediately set out to heal the strife that was bedeviling the church. Um, to Constantine, who would eventually be baptized in 337, as he approached the end of the life, end of his life, Christianity became both a way to God and a way to unite the empire. Okay. Per per him. Yeah. Yeah. But he's the emperor of Rome. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire. So that's a pretty big position to be in, right? Constantine saw Christianity as both a way to God and a way to unite the empire. So personally... He was accepting that way to God, but he also, hey, this is going to be a good deal for the empire. We're going to bring everything together. Yeah. Well, he he probably, like a lot of people that maybe first become believers or believe in a faith of some kind, they go, this is, I, I got I to get everybody onto this. This is going to be great. It's going to change everything. Right. So maybe yeah. he wasn't well, thinking politically. He was just thinking, I want to help everyone. Yeah, I think the thing is, we don't really know exactly what he was thinking. But by based on actions that he took, it was a really good political move for him over time. But there's also actions that he took that made it very clear it was very meaningful to him at times, too. So we don't really know. I've read Christian writers who were like, Constantine, you know, came to the Lord, and so he did all these things. And I've read secular writers who were like, he used the church to accomplish this, this, and this, and this. You know, so it's just a matter of perspective. We know what happened, why Mm. he was doing exactly what he's thinking, we might not always know. So yesterday, was it just yesterday? It was just yesterday. Yeah. No, Friday. I went to, two days ago. I took another trip to that McKay's bookstore. The one out in West Nashville. Yes, which is like used books to the hilt. This time we went in with three boxes and got us a credit. <laughs> so, oh, you went to take books back. Well, we went to get books, to shop and to enjoy the experience. Can I? <laughs> but we walked in, we got us a credit. 
<laughs> I had a relationship, still do as a friend of mine. I haven't, haven't done this in years, but years ago, he's in the business of buying and selling books on Amazon and does a lot of transactions. Like in his home, had all these books. And, they, right. and he used scanning and technology to inventory his whole right, thing. Right. Okay, okay, you want me to shut up about it? But no, I want to. McKay, McKay's books, shout out to McKay's books. I would go to McKay's. And he would buy my credits with cash. Oh. Because he would use the credits because he wanted the, you know, he wanted the credits. I didn't care about the credits because I didn't want any more books. Right. So he said, yeah, you go get a credit and I'll buy the credits for, it was some kind of percentage. It was a deal he was working with me. Right. But I could go buy the credits for cash. Yes. That was strong. That was strong. Because instead of McKay saying, here, here's the credit. Here's yeah. your hundred Well, you bucks. can say that way, but. That's a big deal to us to get some credits. Cause no, because you want the books. We want the books. And I came home with a lot of books and started cramming for this next podcast with this book called Rome and Jerusalem, The Clash of Ancient Civilizations by Martin Goodman. This is an interesting book. The It is so interesting. Now, I don't know. That I would, yeah, it's interesting. It's Why a good did he read. write it? What's the take? Why did he write it? Um, he, to sh it, when he says the clash of ancient civilizations, he's writing, he's kind of writing the history of the Jews and the history of Rome and how they interacted. But then he ties all of that around the fall of Jerusalem. So it's got, I picked it up. And it was a little pricey for a McKay's book. Mm. But there were some sections in it. And look at that fine print. It's a big book with fine print. Yeah. I'm like, I can't read this whole thing in, in time. Because we, in a way, we've already talked about this, right? Yeah, well, it was like 70 AD, right? Yeah, when that happened. But Thank he, you, ladies and gentlemen. I got that right. Yeah, two AD. points. So he, um, he takes that event and uses it to back tell the story that leads up to that event. And then to tell about... What happens in Rome and with the Jews moving forward? So Christianity comes into it because Christianity's right before that time, and stuff. And so there's some stuff in the latter part of the book that I'm bringing into our discussion today. Okay, but actually, it's the next to the last chapter. But because if you've read the whole book, no, I read the <laughs> chapter titles and went to where I thought there was going to be information that would be pertinent for today. But I hope that I will take the time at some point to read. The book because it is pretty well written. I I think that it is definitely not a faith based material. He is definitely. It's a more of a historical. Record. It's historical, but it also has some little. Like he has a he has a slant to it. Like a little bit of a slant, but um, and I'm not. I don't want to speak too much to that because I haven't read the whole book. But he is a um, renowned in Jewish and Roman studies examines this conflict, its causes, and its consequences with unprecedented authority and thoroughness. So, it is. this is the authoritative work of how these two great civilizations collided and how the reverberations are felt to this day. Hmm. Isn't that cool? So, sold me, read those well, parts. Well, it made me start thinking about, you know, kind of like a somebody making a historical fiction um story around that like like a movie that you'd watch and there's some sort of oh, love yeah. story oh, connected well, to it that and the just as i mentioned when we were talking about it, the destruction of of jerusalem was very gruesome but anyway um here's where it comes back in he starts describing when constantine <clears throat> becomes associated with the church and what constantine does and it says so up until then the city which had been called Byzantium, uh, Constantine developed it by surrounding it with great defensive walls and decorating it with diverse monuments. Having put it on an equal level with Rome and having changed its name to Constantinople, he prescribed by law that it should be called Second Rome. Mm. So he raises it up, monuments, walls, and says it's a Second Rome. Okay. The city was thus above all a monument to Constantine himself, and as such it was a place where he could present, present himself openly, defiantly, as devoted to the Christian God, as Eusebius 
es- ecstatically reports. Okay, do you remember who Eusebius is? Eusebius was he a prof? Uh, a, a, a prof- What's the word? I don't know. Apostolic father? No, he was. Gosh, he guys, was. That's more but points. We, but for we me. learned a lot about the apostolic fathers through him. He was the one that I was listening to the audio book when I was traveling. He wrote the first history of the church and he lived at the time of Constantine. And he's actually hmm. appears. He was a friend of the emperor and he actually, and he has an audio book out. <laughs> yes. We talked about that. Eusebius. The, Paul Meyer, M A I A E R something like that. He translated Eusebius Church History, the okay. church history. Yeah, we did talk about it. I we, was just trying to do the joke again because okay. even the first time you sounded like Eusebius had an audiobook out. He did. He he was way ahead of his time. Anyway, the author of this Rome and Jerusalem, Martin Goodman, quotes Eusebius, and I remember listening to this because I had not realized this what an impact Constantine had on uh, particular cities and particular buildings in those cities. Okay. I knew that he moved the capital, but I didn't understand this building campaign. So this is Eusebius describing this new city of Constantinople. Okay. So it's going to, it was written in 300, 350 or something like mm-hmm. that. Okay. In honoring with exceptional distinction the city which bears his name, he embellished it with very many places of worship, very large martyr shrines, and splendid houses, some standing before the city and others in it. By these he at the same time honored the tombs of the martyrs and consecrated the city to the martyrs, to the martyrs' God, meaning talking about the Christian martyrs, being full of the breath of God's wisdom, which he reckoned a city bearing his own name should display, he saw fit to purge it of all idol worship, so that nowhere in it appeared those images of the supposed gods which are worshipped in temples, nor altars foul with bloody slaughter, nor sacrifice offered as holocaust in fire, nor feast of demons, nor any of the other customs of the superstitious." You would see at the fountains set in the middle of squares the emblems of the Good Shepherd, evident signs to those who start from the divine oracles, and Daniel with his lions shaped in bronze and glinting with the gold leaf. So great was the divine passion which had seized the emperor's soul that in the royal quarters all at the... And at the divine, uh, imperial palace itself, on the most eminent building of the middle of the gilded... of the gilded coffer adjoining the roof in the very center was a very large wide panel had been affixed the emblem of the saving passion made up of a variety of precious stones and set in much gold i think that's a cross the mm-hmm. emblem of the saving passion mm-hmm. in stones and gold this appears to have been as a protection for his empire so that's eusebius's colorful words describing what constantine is doing in constantinople really making it, in Eusebius' mind, a Christian city. Yeah, yeah. Okay? The author of the book thinks that Eusebius is exaggerating a little bit about all the temple worship being done away with, but that's what Eusebius is saying, okay? Um, So that was what was happening in Constantinople. But he also then, in Rome, built... uh, churches on the side of martyrs and um, made made changes in Rome. Rome, one of the things I read in here was that at the time of Constantine, the house churches in Rome, nobody would have known that they were a church. They just looked like other houses. There was not any evidence of Christianity in Rome, which would make sense because it was a persecuted religion. Mm-hmm. So he went in and um, created churches, but not as loud and up front as in Constantinople. He did more outside of the walls than he did in front of the walls, mm-hmm. in inside of the walls. But he gave the land and built the first church that became St. Peter's Basilica, where the Vatican is today. So, Wes, if you want to throw up that picture, the old St. This is the current St. Peter's, but old St. Peter's Basilica was the building that stood from the 4th to the 16th centuries where the new St. Peter's Basilica stands today in Vatican City. 
Construction of the is the wow. other is the other one. Construction of the basilica built over the historical site of the Circus of Nero began during the reign of Emperor Constantine. So the Circus of Nero was a big um, amphitheater, almost like a racetrack, really. But it was where Christians were martyred there, and so over that site, Saint Peter's was built. And the bones I've been there, and the bones of Peter are supposedly below the altar. Like you can look and go down and see where they're kept down under there. You can't see the bones. Obviously, they're encased in a lot of cases and gold and all this kind of stuff. But you can go wow. down and see the cases. Wow. And um, as you can, I don't know if you can tell this in is that in picture. The Vatican City. It's in Vatican City, which is. Just it looks like it's a part of Rome, but it's just outside of Rome's city okay. limits. And I don't know if you can tell from that picture, but these buildings in the front are like four story buildings, and you can see the little tiny people that are down on the ground. Yeah, yeah. so that gives you a perspective of how huge wow that basilica is. And then as we move forward in history, we'll study about the time when it was enlarged and rebuilt. And there's great um, works of art in and around it. Um, and that's where the Pope lives now. If you turn on the TV on Easter Sunday, a lot of other times, but you'll see the Pope doing Easter Mass in St. Peter's Square, which is that square right okay. in front of that building. So this so, is, goes all the way back to Constantinople, not Constant, Constantine creating this in Rome. Yeah, just outside. And then he also, the other picture, another pl- uh, these were not the only churches, but these are two that we still see today. And the other one is on the spot where they believe St. Paul is buried, and it is St. Paul beyond the walls. Um, that's the name of it because it's outside the walls of Jerusalem. Is The basilica was founded by the Roman Emperor Constantine over the burial place of St. Paul, where it was said that after the apostles' execution, his followers erected a memorial. And in so. that place, we've been there, too, and it's very interesting. Inside, when we were there, I think now it's been not quite 20 years ago. And when I would have to do the math to know how many popes we've had since then. I think it may be three. But along the interior, up near the, the ceiling, around the walls of the inside of that uh, church, cathedral, Basilica, they have cameos of each pope, starting with Peter. And when we were there, there was only room for like three more. So we were going, oh, you know, we were doing a lot of talk about that. Mm. I have to go back and look, but anyway, and that's all that all that colorful stuff up at the top. That's all mosaic tile. Oh wow, it's beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful building there and that's right near the it's on top of and around the catacomb catacombs which i don't know if you remember do you remember hearing stories about that how the christians would what the catacombs were do you know what i'm talking about it's sounding familiar but i don't think we've talked about it on here we haven't and it's not like a major point it was just interesting when we were there the catacombs are like underground burial places tunnels and the christians would go to meet and worship there to not be discovered. Okay. So it's kind of interesting too. So that was some of the stuff he did in Rome. So he built this new city in Constantinople on a Christian model. He did Rome and then now he looks to Jerusalem. And we haven't talked about Jerusalem since its destruction in 70. Yeah. So if Rome and Constantinople were administrative centers of the empire, Jerusalem was to be its spiritual heart. Okay. And that's a quote from the Silk Roads from Peter Frankopan. So Rome and Constantinople were administrative centers. Jerusalem was to be its spiritual heart. Um, Through Constantine's wealth and piety, Jerusalem was to become again under imperial patronage, a great religious center, a magnet for pilgrims. And so so because this book, Rome and Jerusalem, is about about the history of those places and those people, he has a lot of detail about chapters, about what is happening in Jerusalem between the time of 70 AD and the time of 312. 
Wow. Okay. And so we're not going to get into all that, but I'm going to kind of read some summation paragraphs. Okay. So before the city's transformation by Constantine, the ancient status of Jerusalem was for ordinary Romans, Romans, a most distant memory. Most of them didn't even remember that. You're thinking about that. It's been 250 years. Okay. Don't think about it. I didn't ask Google to tell me how to pronounce this word, so I might not be doing it right. It's A-E-L-I-A. Aelia? Aelia? Let's just go with Aelia, okay? Aelia. Aelia sounds right. That was the name of the village, the town, that was on the site that used to be Jerusalem. Aelia, the name of the Roman colony, which had replaced the Jews' sacred city, was so firmly entrenched that it continued in official use even under Christian emperors. With the significant omission of the second part of the original name, which was Capitolina, which denoted the dedication of the colony to Jupiter Capitolinus, which was no, felt no longer appropriate. Okay. So it wasn't called Jerusalem anymore? No, because they wiped it out and they wanted to wipe the Jews out. They wanted to wipe the memory of it out. And he spends a lot of time in here talking about the political motivations of those emperors at that time to mark the Jews as a problem and how that that helped them politically to do that. And so this big, 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 you know, we talked about Trajan's arch when he, was it mm. Trajan? Or Titus, Titus, Titus. When he came back and the arch was built and the menorah and all the things are carved into it, that was all part of what this author would call propaganda hmm. to make the point that this was a good thing we did and to unify the empire around this idea. So, I mean, the the city was razed to the ground. I mean, like there was nothing left. And I've watched a couple of recent videos of some recent archaeology and discussions about where the temple was and where the temple should be rebuilt. And because it was so raised, it's really hard to tell. Like, there's a lot of discussion going on about that. So it was named Aelia, and, um, but the Capitolina part was, was dropped. And even the church historian Eusebius used the name Aelia along with Jerusalem indiscriminately in one of his writings when he was talking about biblical sites. So even he would go back and forth, okay? Now, how uh, long until we get to it, it's become Jerusalem again? Well, I think here. Okay. I think, I think I don't know that I ever read anywhere that he changed the name, that he started calling it Jerusalem again, but probably because it says Jerusalem was to be its spiritual heart. Yeah. Okay? With the departure, so the 10th Legion had, the 10th Legion of the Roman army had its... Was was uh, I don't you don't use the word home I don't know right the word but anyway it was it was stationed headquartered. there headquartered there okay in in Jerusalem at the time and then stayed there okay so with the tenth legion had left over the course of the third century and um let me start that whole sentence with the departure of the tenth legion from the colony over the course of the third century the influx of wealth from the central state in the form of military pay had dried up. So these soldiers who were getting paid were gone, and there wasn't any money coming in. The Aelia was well connected by military roads to Caesarea and other garrison towns, such as the secondary legionary base at Legion in the Jezreel Valley, but the colony was isolated in the Judean mountains and lay on no major trade routes. So there weren't people automatically passing through there. With no special natural resources, even intensive exploitation of the surrounding countryside could bring only meager rewards. There is no reason to doubt that the Aelia enjoyed the standard facilities of any city in the Roman East, such as public baths and a theater, but deprived of the oxygen of a large military presence or crowds of religious enthusiasts, it was sinking into obscurity. So this place, now that the legions were gone, there was no reason for pilgrims to come there. Everything was raised to ground. Nobody really remembered it anyway. It was sinking into obscurity. But for Christians, of course, the sight of this obscure colony was significant because of what had happened there long ago. Yeah. Right? So there is little evidence that any Christians before Constantine thought that the sites in Jerusalem made famous by their biblical associations, were themselves to be venerated as holy. So there's no evidence, little evidence, that Christians before Constantine felt like those places should be held up as holy. So he decided, hey, we gotta, we're going to make this a holy place. 
On the contrary, the New Jerusalem to which Christians looked was not of this world. The New Jerusalem belonged to the last days envisaged envisaged by many centuries before by the prophet Ezekiel and applied to the church by John in the book of Revelation. So when when they they had no need to build a physical New Jerusalem because the New Jerusalem was what Christ would bring back at his return as prophesied throughout the Old Testament and this into is, the news. Yeah. Okay. So Jerusalem's just sitting there, but Constantine founded and built the many of the shrines that we see in Jerusalem today. It's interesting because I don't think I've ever learned that between Christ's death and what, 300 something AD, mm-hmm. Jerusalem just kind of faded and went away. What well, was from 70 AD? Yeah. And well, because everything was wiped out, everything was wiped out. Very few people left there, and there wasn't really an economy, right? The economy was the legion. Hmm. Okay? So back to Eusebius. This is what Eusebius says about what Constantine's doing there. And I remember listening to this, too, and I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say this before I read it because I'm not sure what it's going to sound like in this sense. But, like, I, I myself have not been to the Holy Land. I have many friends and family who have. And you see all these pictures and the... Like the place where Jesus was born and this ornate church and all this ornate stuff and the place where the tomb was and blah, blah. And my thinking was, I, I had the thought, how do they really know that that's where it was? And it's just like, and it doesn't look anything like it did then because it's all gilded and gold and blah, blah, blah. And I know that there's a lot in the Catholic church over the centuries that is all gilded and gold. And I just really saw that as something that the church had come in and done and didn't really, yeah, anyway, it's a little bit doubtful about all that, right? Which probably shouldn't have been. But when you look at that these places were built and memorialized at the time of Constantine, that's less, that's only like 250 years after it really happened. Mm-hmm. And you would think it would make sense that the people who were left there knew where Golgotha was and knew where yeah. the stable in Bethlehem was and that at the time of Christ, they cared about those spots and re- and the locals remembered those spots, the, the local peasantry that was left there. So they were able to identify where they were. So this is Eusebius. As the prince, at the principal locations... And he's, well, he's talking about a principal location was the tomb of Jesus. The tomb full of age-long memory comprising the trophies of the great Savior's defeat of death, a tomb of divine presence where once an angel radiant with light proclaimed to all the good news of the rebirth demonstrated by the Savior. On the side opposite the cave, which looked toward the rising sun, was connected the royal temple, an extraordinary structure raised to an immense height and very extensive in length and breadth. Its interior was covered with slams, uh, slabs of varied marble, and the external aspect of the walls, gleaming with hewn stone fitted closely together at each joint, produced a supreme object of beauty by no means inferior to marble. Right up at the top of the material, which encased the outside of the roofs, was uh, a sure protection was led, a sure protection against stormy rain, while the interior of the structure was fitted with carved coffers and like a vast sea spread out by a series of joints binding to each other through the whole royal house and being beautified throughout with be- brilliant gold made the whole shrine glitter with beams of light. This then was the shrine which the emperor raised as a manifest testimony of the Savior's resurrection, embellishing the whole with rich imperial decoration. He adorned it with untold beauties and innumerable dedications of gold and silver and precious stones set in various materials. In view of their size, number, and variety, to describe in detail the skilled craftsmanship which went into their manufacture would be beyond the scope of this present work. So This is across from the tomb. Yeah, at the tomb and across from the tomb, okay? Um, and, and here's the thing. The magnificent remodeling of the center of Aaliyah to provide a Christian focus for the city was intended less for the benefit of local inhabitants, which the churches in Rome had been for the benefit of the local inhabitants, but it was less for them than for the pilgrims from around the Christian world. 
Constantine himself never visited the Holy Land after his schemes had been put into action, although his mother-in-law, Eutropia, did, and so famously, famously did his own mother, Helena, founding one church, the Iliana Basilica on the Mount of Olives, and another at the site of the Nativity in Bethlehem. So it was Constantine's mother. Now, what's, what's happened to these places? Now? Yeah, in the last... Well, 1800 years. that's a good question. And they're, they're there for you to visit and see. I mean, producer Wes could like, like call up a picture of, of the tomb of Christ and call up a picture of uh, the nativity site in Bethlehem and call it. Uh, yeah. I didn't even. Uh, okay. Yeah. They're there. Quite gilded. And we'll, we'll see that in a minute. Gilded. Gilded. More hmm. important in Constantine's eyes were the elite from across the empire whom he hoped to win over to his new faith. No, well, that's interesting because the stuff's built all around it. Yes, the churches of the Holy Land with buildings smaller than the vast edifice built by Constantine in Rome, but large areas of open space were designed for the reception of pilgrims in large number. So. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Because the listener can't see these pictures, but I'm I'm seeing you know live science Newsweek. It's basically encapsulated in other buildings down yes. deep in the ground. Yes, yeah. And I do remember in some of the stuff about the tomb that it had do been covered up later. Live science picture there, to the one to the left. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's what you would see now. Isn't that yeah? It's completely inside of a building. Inside of a building, inside of a building. Right. So it had been my thought when I saw that, like, I, I wanted to go to Jesus' tomb, but I wanted to look like it did, like some of those <laughs> other pictures, like that one there. Yeah, that are just made up. Well, some, I've, I've, well, and I'm probably speaking out of school. Study. I don't think that's the right picture. I think that's just a made up picture. No, I think that, looks that one down there that says a new study suggests that Jesus, there's there's argument about where, they're, where all this stuff is built is really the spot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And things like that. But that is more realistic of what it would have looked like at the time before all this stuff got built over it. Which one? The 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 stone with the that? Hole. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe that. <laughs> it was they did have stones that they rolled in Yeah, front. but that stone looks like it was made in a in a manu, in a plant. Well, they didn't make them for that purpose. They cut mm. them out for the purpose of rolling in front of the Okay. I'm not. I, this podcast is not to debate what it looked like. I mean, I like those pictures, but I don't think it looked like you know the Flintstones. <laughs> the Flintstones. <laughs> I mean, because it looks like one of the wheels on the Flintstones car. <laughs> they did. They did. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so here's a little tidbit. Yeah, yeah. Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, Christ was laid in his tomb, mm -hmm. and he was a wealthy man, so he yeah. would have had a nice thing all set up. Yeah, I'm not saying that it didn't form the shape of a circle and was able to roll, but that looks like <laughs> it came out of Lebanon, Tennessee at a quarry. Anyway, okay. I'm not going to go ahead. It could be right. I little, could be wrong. A little homework for next time. Get out there. All right. So one other thing. So that's all about Constantine making these changes. Here's just a fun little tidbit that was in the midst we're, of we're all this. We're going to run out of time. Yeah. Fun little tidbit, and then we'll we can. We need to talk about Mr. Bag, Mr. Bag. We okay, wait Mr. just Bag. a minute. Let me finish my sentence, so we okay. can go there. All right. So, he he um he made a lot of changes in law too, and so this was an interesting thing that I heard in my studies, that an example of one of the changes he made is by three twenty one, he had passed a law that people were not to work on Sunday. Interesting, but I just when you said three twenty one. The law that law's passed, but Edict of Milan was three what twelve, three twenty one, by three twenty one. Oh, no working on Sunday. Yeah. Now, how long is that with us? Still is, to some degree. Like you and I can remember when a lot of places were closed on Sunday. Yeah, and and the hours are different on Sunday. At least at the very least. Yeah. You're always going to check when it's Sunday. You're always going to check. Are they open? What are well, their hours? Some people will. Some people wouldn't. But maybe. Well. Yeah, but just that, that was a, Constantinople started that. Constantine did, yeah. Gosh, why am I calling him the name of the city? Constantine. And not the one that sang on American Idol, Idol and then was later on Rock of Ages in Broadway. <laughs> I think that his last name was Morales. He was Greek. Yeah, I remember. Wonder where he got his name. 
Probably from the Constantine we talking about. Probably from him. But anyway, that's like that's 1,700 years of not working on Sunday. Mm. And here we are working on Sunday. I remember when I was a little girl, I mean, things were closed. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's another joke I'm not going to say. Okay. So we're out of time of 45. We're we out of time. Have we had fun? We've had fun. Um, I made some notes for the next episode, and we didn't get to the mystery bags, plural. Yeah, well, we'll be back. We'll be back. All right. Thanks for listening to episode 45. I hope you learned. I did. I learned that uh, Jerusalem wasn't a thing for a few years. I just <laughs> said, whatever, forget about it. I didn't know that. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast, brought to you by One Thing Only. For more information and related content, head over to onethingonly.org and click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. There you will find related content as well as a way to ask questions and make comments. We want to hear from you. You can find us on all your streaming podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again.